Would you grab your Bible, turn to Malachi. We're going to look at the first five verses today. Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Malachi 1, 1 and following. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Here's God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. And if Edom says, these are the descendants of Esau. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We're going to go ahead and get right into this. Malachi's name means messenger. And outside of his name, we really don't know much about him at all. So in light of this, it seems like one of the first things we can learn about Malachi is that he was more focused on being faithful than being famous and being known. And so Malachi has this message that has been given by God to take to Israel. Verse 1 gives us the setting of this and kind of the background. This is a message from the Lord. It's to Israel or Judah, the Gentiles who have come back. They've been back about a hundred years now. And it's through the prophet named Malachi or messenger. This book takes place around 430 years before the coming of Jesus. It's right before the time of silence when God's not going to send prophets anymore. He'd given them His Word. They they knew what they needed to do. And so God is going to be silent moving forward. It's interesting, last week we spent quite a bit of time with 1 Thessalonians. And when you look from Malachi all the way to 1 Thessalonians... That was likely the first New Testament book that was written, even before the gospel, sometime around AD 51. It is about 480 years from the end of Malachi to 1 Thessalonians, where God was not writing anymore. There was not anything being written. There were no prophets being raised up until John the Baptist comes upon the scene. This is one of the reasons we should study this book. This is the last voice of God to the Old Testament generation in regard to a prophet that has been called of God to walk with Him and to know Him. What's interesting about this book is it contains 55 verses. Please hear this. This has 55 verses in it. It's unique among all the other books in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Obviously, God is the author behind it all. But the contents of Malachi, of the 55 verses, 47 of them are spoken directly by God Himself. So this is a message that is deeply grounded in what God wanted to say um, to the people. It's also a neglected book. It's been overlooked um, in the church for a long time. I've been a believer for about 41 years now, and I've uh, never heard a sermon series on it. Um, I've never taught it, so this is the very first time that I've even taught this. But I think you you, you and I will find as we walk through this, this fall, that this is something really significant that we should think about because I think it has great relevance to us in 2023. So we want to let it run through 
our lives in a unique way. So I want to remind us as we begin to walk through this, this is a letter written to God's covenant people. This was not written to uh, the pagan nations around Israel that had many gods that they worshipped, many idols. This was written to God's specific people, His covenant people, in regard to the condition that they are. One of the potential pitfalls that comes to us in 2023, as we look back on some of the Old Testament characters and seasons of Israel throughout their history, is to look at them and go, gosh, those people were so simple. They had so many issues. We would never have done that if we would have lived back then. And we look back because these things are written on pages and we can study them and study them and study them and read them and read them and read them. And we kind of go, kind of scratch our heads at times and go, why did they seem to keep doing the same things over and over and over again? So their sinful choices lead us to think they must have been a little bit simplistic, but the reality is their issue wasn't that they were simplistic. Have you ever seen um, the archaeology and the engineering of things that were built thousands and thousands of years ago? These were smart people. These were not dumb people. These were people who had the revelation of God and knew what they needed to do, and yet they failed to do it. So I thought of this question this week as we began this series. What if our generation would be printed on the pages of sacred scripture and handed back to Old Testament people that they would be able to read about our faith? What, what, what was the church like? What is the church like? And what would this Holy Spirit inspire some writer to write about the church in 2023 to hand to the Old Testament people to read about Did we follow God? Were we interested in God? Were we the kind of people that wanted to follow Him? Would things be different at all than what we were about to read and go through here? And while it should not necessarily be easier for us to evaluate other generations, we sure seem to find an honest assessment of others easier than taking an honest assessment of our own lives and our own condition. And God is going to have an assessment of Israel And he's going to have some things to say to them. And they're going to have some issue with what God has to say. So as we start this study in Malachi, I want to put forth that our generation of people possibly are not any different at all than the people of the Old Testament. That we are wrestling and studying. We have lack of faith that seems to dominate as well seasons of life that last honestly too long. This was the case with Israel. They, they knew better. This was not a lack of information issue with Israel. They had a whole history with Malachi's generation of what it was like to walk with God. They had great examples of that, to follow and embrace. And then they also had bad examples of what it was like to be a worshiper and a follower of God. And so again, today, I will say this to us. In the height of the information age, Our issue in the New Testament church today is not a lack of information. We have plenty of information. We have plenty of history to know what God's heart is about certain things. And so it is absolutely important for us to listen to the lessons that God is trying to teach the last generation of the written part of the Old Testament. So when Malachi, God sovereignly points out to that generation... You have some real issues. There's seven of them he's going to identify and communicate with them. 
And he's going to have the people, God's going to say, hey, this is an issue. And then he's going to have the priests and the people say to God, well, we don't think that's an issue that you think's an issue. We, we know a little bit better, and I think we can evaluate things better about where we are. And they're going to question God's perspective of them and how they are living their faith. So what kind of spiritual condition does it take for a supposed group of people have to be in to question God's truthfulness over and over and over again? When God says, this is what I see, this is what the issue is, and to have those people go, eh, not in agreement, God, of your evaluation of us. Instead, they should have, with each of these, and this significant one that we will look at today, they should have said, God, you're right. We have sinned. We are going to return to you in repentance and get things right with you again. So what was the issue with Malachi's generation? What was the issue with much of the Old Testament people of God? Was the same issue that we see in Genesis chapter 3. The exact same one. Where in our greater societal culture in America and also in the culture of the church, we have selfish hearts that are tainted with sin. And when you have selfish hearts that are tainted with sin, three things kind of are, are behind all of that. One is simply this. There is a doubting of God's eternal goodness and a questioning of God's Word as the sole truth. This took place in the garden. This was happening in Malachi's day. Secondly, there are people who are living selfishly, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, and when that happens, they live just to fill and feed their own selfish and emotional indulgences. Thirdly, this is the big one that took place in the garden and it's very present in our date as well, is we want to be God. And that's what Satan tricked Eve into. Hey, you will be like God if you will do this. And we live in a day and time where nobody wants anyone, even God, telling anybody what to do, what to believe, where to go, what to wear, what not to wear, how to live. And we don't want anybody lording over us in our own lives. And so some people choose sin. They justify the sin. And they just continue to live an empty life because there's only one who offers what is needed, and that is Christ Himself. So in light of those three things, the last generation of the Old Testament reveals to us that they didn't care anymore about the covenant. They just wanted to live in their own manner. And so the Lord has some things He wants to say strongly but lovingly. Every one of them are lovingly said to call them back to walk with Him. And so there are seven questions that we will walk through in the weeks ahead. We're going to put these on the screen real quick. In three chapters, seven questions. God makes a statement. They come back to God with a question. The first one is this. God says, we'll look at today, I have loved you. And they question Him back. Well, God, how have you loved us? Secondly, God says, you've despised my name. And they say back to God, well, God, how have we despised your name? We don't know how we've done that. We don't see that at all. Thirdly, God says, you have defiled my table and my food in the altar. And they're like, God, how in the world have we defiled you? We don't see what we've been doing. The fourth one, God says, I am weary of hearing your words. Just talk and you talk and you talk. And they're like, God, how 
have we wearied you. The fifth one is, God calls them to return. He says, you need to return to me. And then they say, well, God, we don't know how to return to you. Which is a joke. They did know how to do that. Then God's going to say to them, you have robbed me, who have given you this land and have given you crops and cities, and yet you've robbed me. And they say back to God, God, how have we robbed you? We don't have any idea how we have robbed you. And God says, well, you've robbed me in your tithes and your offerings. In the seventh one, God makes a statement and says, y'all have continued to speak against my glory and who I am. And they say back to him, in what way have we spoken against you? So hear this today. This is the state of the covenant people of God at the end of the writing of the Old Testament. Where God lovingly says to the people with great sovereign wisdom and insight, and He says this, I love you. These are the issues. You need to get these things right because I want to bless you. I want to be your God. And I want you to be my unique people. But the people just say, God, we don't think your perspective of us is accurate. We have a different perspective. And God, you need to adjust to this because we, we just have issue with, your quest, with what you want to say. And so we've got these questions to you in regard to this. So at the end of the Old Testament, the priests and the people are living for themselves. They didn't care anything about the consequences anymore. And through Malachi, God's going to uniquely address the nation that is living for itself and make the case. Then listen to this. When God's people live this way, it only leads to more emptiness. It will never lead to more life. And it is crazy to think, God, I'm just going to live how I want to live, and I need you to bless that, to bring some blessing in my life. And they're going to blame God for all the things that are happening in the culture, and they're never going to examine their own hearts. And I guarantee you, you and I can blame our spouse, we can blame our kids, we can blame a boss, we can blame all kinds of different things for the spiritual condition that is in our lives. And the ultimate reality is simply this, we just need to always do an inward look because that's where the issue lies, is with us. And so as we begin to wade into these waters, this is where the nation is. Failing to do an inventory of their own lives. Just holding God in contempt. So this is going to be a cynical, complaining, self-centered, empty-worshipping generation under which Malachi is going to bring a burden message to the people where, in regard to what is happening and taking place in the nation. Just a couple other things by way of introduction. So Zerubbabel, after 70 years, begins to bring the people back into the promised land. They get back into Jerusalem. They see the temples in ruins. The city has been destroyed. So Zerubbabel gets a group of people and they begin to rebuild. The first thing they do is to rebuild the altar in the heart of Jerusalem. Well, they get some issue with some people around them that, that have been there in the 70 years that they've been gone and they give them trouble. And for about 17 years, they quit working on the temple. And they go back to their homes. And if you remember, we studied the book of Haggai this year um, in the W4. 
And they went back home and they began to panel their own houses and make sure their houses were okay. And God raises up Haggai to come to the people and say, what are y'all doing making sure that your home is okay when God's temple lies in ruins? And you need to do something about that. And so over a period of four months, through four messages, Haggai speaks to the people. He gets them motivated again to get back into the the setting to, to rebuild the altar and to begin to work on the temple. Ezra is key when the temple is completed to leading people to a, a biblical focus again. Nehemiah is gone and he hears about that the walls around Jerusalem and the city are still fallen down. And, and so Nehemiah comes back and over just a matter of weeks, Nehemiah moves the people to restore the walls around Jerusalem. The people who come back know that Zechariah has been prophesying They remember words that Isaiah wrote that after the exile, they're going to come back to the land and God's going to bless the land again. He's going to restore Israel to prominence again. And now this last generation of the Old Testament, they have been back now for about a hundred years. And they're looking around, they're just going, God, what's up with the promises? You said that you were going to restore things. You sent us away to teach us a lesson. Now we've been back about 100 years, and they are just like they were when they were sent away. They had become apathetic again toward God, and they weren't worshiping Him. And so now they're looking around, and they're charging God with, God, it doesn't look like you are loving us, and you are taking care of us, taking care of us. And it's kind of like this. They're just like, really, God? This is what you call the prosperity that the prophets wrote about that when this time would come? Because it sure doesn't look like prosperity. It sure doesn't look like blessing. And not only that, they look around, they see that they're not having influence on the other nations. They were to be the shining light for all of the nations. and Instead, the nation had entered into a time of spiritual and moral and cultural decline. And they were disappointed with God. And instead of finding out what do we need to do about this and return back to God, they just continue to go through the motions. And that's where this age is as we come to Malachi. And as always, the issue was the issue with God? No. The issue was with them. Their hearts of disobedience. So as Israel finds themselves at the close of the writing of the Old Testament Scriptures. They are selfish and they are cynical. They are feeling sorry for themselves because it was not, watch this, American church, it wasn't comfortable and easy anymore. It was costing something. And they're like, we were supposed to come back and God, you were going to do this. But the issue is, God, listen, I know we say this over and over again and I don't know if it sinks in, God blesses obedience. He never has blessed disobedience. And so if a church or a people or a denomination, whatever the case is, wants to walk in disobedience and then at the same time have an expectation of God, they ought to bless that, then stop thinking that way. He does not bless disobedience. And this dominated Malachi's generation. Yes, there was a remnant walking with God. But the majority were not. They were just simply going through the motions. And they're like, come on, God. What else do you want us 
to do. You sent us away for 70 years. We've come back. We've rebuilt the temple. We're reading the law again. We're meeting again. Sacrifices are happening and taking place again. We've restored the holy city, Jerusalem. Our families came back. All of this has been rebuilt. God, we've done our part. Now it's time for you to do your part. But they weren't doing their part. They were apathetic and rebellious again and full of disobedience. As I said a while ago, they were not anything different than what they were like when God sent them away to teach them a lesson for 70 years. They were there. So God needs to do something and something needs to be addressed. And so he begins to speak to them. So that's my introduction. Now we're going to get to the heart of this. So God, what do people need to rouse them once again to what God wants them to do? Well, God does what He has always done. God is a speaking God, and so He's going to use words again to kind of get them, hopefully, to hear what God has to say, to return in repentance. And so the first thing I want us to see today is this, is that God deals with His people primarily through words. This is what God had done always. You can't find it really anywhere in Scripture where the Lord is not dealing with His people with words. And so what comes to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament is not an easy devotional talk that He is to give to the people. It is weighty. It is a strong message. It is an oracle of God. Let me tell you what an oracle of God is. An oracle of God, this word in the Hebrew means something that has a burden with it. It's words with a burden, a message with a burden that is heavy and weighty to give. So God comes to Malachi, whose name is Messenger. Messenger, I have a message that you are to go and you are to give to the people. And it's a weighty message. I want you to go and speak from my heart to the people and call them to listen to this. Why are the words of God weighty? Well, one reason the words of God are weighty and there's a burden that is to be carried with them is simply this. Because they are the words of God. And God's words should not be trivialized. God's words should be taken seriously. And so the words of God are always significant. They are always substantial. Therefore, there is a burden that is connected to having a message from God. Secondly, why is a message from God, why does it carry such a burden? One, yes, Because they are the words of God and they are absolutely vital. Secondly, because when God gives a word to speak to people, most of the time, sadly, they are rejected and they are not followed. And so God has another word for Malachi's generation at the end of the writing part of the Old Testament. And they're just going to go, yeah, we're not interested in that. We don't think your words have relevance again, to where we are. Malachi felt this deep burden. I feel it Sunday after Sunday when I speak here. Malachi is having to speak to a stubborn people. And his call from God was to receive this divine inspiration to share God's heart with the people, but it was not going to be embraced. 
So what does a what does a preacher do? What does a pastor do? What does a prophet do? When God says, Go say this, say this, knowing that who it's said to are going to be stubborn and they're going to go, You can't tell me what to do. And I'm not telling you what to do. The prophets weren't telling the people what to do. God was telling the people what they needed to do and how they needed to respond to his word. And so there's such a critical nature that is connected to the reality of the Old Testament stories. Are y'all with me? The Old Testament is absolutely relevant to 2023. Listen to what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So we proclaim this message from Malachi today for this reason. It is designed by God to be instructive to us and to give us hope. Anybody need hope today? I do. Our nation needs hope. How does a nation get the kind of hope that it needs? Through God's people having a burden about the Word of God and proclaiming it even if those listening to it are stubborn, obstinate, cynical people who question God. The Word still has to do what? Be said. It has to go forth. Here's another one if that's not enough for you while we study the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So hear this church this morning. Malachi has a burden message that God has laid upon his life to go and speak this to a group of people that were not going to welcome the words the prophets of the Old Testament. I think pastors today need to be this way as well. We are, we are Spurgeon said this, the prophets of old were no triflers. They carried a burden. They were servants of God who meant business. They knew that they had something to carry, something worth speaking. And those who speak for God must not speak lightly. God's true servants, Spurgeon said, who are burdened with His Word, Rightfully and willingly and cheerfully carry that burden. So we bear a burden indeed, but we should not be sorry to not bear it. And I tell you today, one of the great needs that we have are people like Malachi who are willing to speak what needs to be said. And so this, this dealing with God through words comes through Malachi. And I tell you, the gospel is not fluffy business, it's serious business designed to awaken us to walk with God. Now secondly, this morning, is I just want to state, make this statement and then we're going to move right um, into point three. So once again, God's covenant people have said, God, we're going to do our own thing. God's going to speak seven times to the people. They're going to question Him back seven times. God's assessment of them. But a people who are in rebellion, what do they need to be reminded of mostly? It's what God does first here. I want to remind you that I love you. And I want you to know 
that though you've been this way, I'm not like you who have another be back for generation after generation after generation and for so long. I, I want to remind you that I do love you and you are still my people and I'm calling you back into relationship with me. And so that leads us to point three this morning is just verse two. Look at verse two, the first part of it. I, God speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord. It is fitting that this last message at the end of the Old Testament begins with God saying, I love you, Israel. I still love you in spite of history, in spite of all of this, in spite of the condition that you're in now. I love you. I have loved you. The tense of this verb means this. I have always loved you. I love you today, and I will love you in the future. I love you. One of the greatest gifts that God did to Israel and to us is to love sinners in His sovereign love. It was sovereignly given to them, and it was a permanent gift to them. And it began with one man by the name of Abraham, and it continues his love for them to this day. He loves all the nations of the world, and he loves Israel. We, we see in the book of Revelation that God's not done with them. We know now that there's been a hardening and a, a veil has been there. And they, are, they, they, they have missed the gospel because of the rejection of God over and over and over. And there was kind of a, a, just a real turning point when they rejected Jesus, their Messiah, living in their midst. But God is saying to them, I love you. I am, I am that I am. And I love you. And I called you to be my unique People. It's interesting. This whole Israel thing started with a guy named Abraham. And so you just look real closely, and then God begins through children and the generations to spread this out. And by the way, we are here in this room this morning for anybody who knows Jesus because of God's choosing of pouring himself out and calling Abraham to follow him. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless every family on the earth from this calling that I have for you, Abraham. And so Abraham was not a perfect man, but he was a friend of God and he trusted God. And we are here today as a direct result. He is our father of faith, modeling for us what this looks like. And so God tells the people, who were fighting him in Malachi's generation, I love you. This is an interesting Hebrew word. We like the New Testament Greek words for love because they feel good. This is an interesting word for love in the Hebrew. It means this, to give yourself out in close relationship and affection for somebody else, but coupled with that love is tough love. It's like we do with our kids sometimes. I love you, but I've got to be tough with you in this moment and in this instance. So people can speak of God in the Old Testament in a way that says that he just was about the law. He was rigid and angry. And, and I tell you, if you'll read the Old Testament rightly, what do you see through the Old Testament? Patient love. Unbelievable patient love of a nation that rebelled against him over and over and wanted to go their own way. And God loved in the Old Testament and God loves in the New Testament and there's not been a change about that. 
at all about God's love for broken people and calling broken, broken people into relationship with Him. And then once they're in relationship with Him, God loving those people to walk with Him. Listen to some of these Old Testament verses about God's love. Because you are, Isaiah 43, 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Jeremiah writes in 31.3, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. So right at the close of the Old Testament, God begins His last message in Scripture by saying this again, I love you. You have not always loved me, and you are not loving me now, but I want you to know that I love you. I am not like you in the area of love. So again, this is in the perfect tense. When this statement is made, I have loved you, says the Lord. It says, I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. This is what God is saying to them. He has never changed. They had changed. But God's love for them was unique. There's an interesting text in Deuteronomy 7 where, well, let me just read it. Deuteronomy 7, 6. He didn't choose Abraham. He didn't choose this group of people that are now slaves in Egypt because they were many, many, so many of them and they had a lot of money and they had great bank accounts and they were attractive looking. They were slaves. And listen to what God says. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. And out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now listen to this. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I want to remind everybody in the room this morning of this unbelievable reality. The Bible is clear. We are born in sin. We are separated from God. And when salvation comes to us through His Son, Jesus... It is the most amazing, amazing truth that anybody could ever know. God made a way for broken sinners, people who went their own way, people obstinate. Anybody obstinate in the room at times with God? I am. And God uniquely through His Son Jesus has given unto us salvation. And our hope rests Again, not in that we do well perfectly all the time because we will not. Our hope rests is that there's one who is perfect and he has chosen us and he has given us his son and he has redeemed us. And our our hope rests in that reality. So God tells this generation, I love you. I know you don't love me right now and the priesthood's a mess. You people are a mess. But I want you to know I love you. God speaks these powerful words. 
and I don't know how they come over your life today. You are loved by God today. Everybody in the room, we are loved by Him. This eternal, perfect God, loving, imperfect people, He loved us. Proof of it, His Son, Jesus. You are loved today. And that ought to wash over us. It ought to just make somebody in the room go, Yeah! I'm into that. Give me more of that. And here's what Israel did. God makes this powerful declaration. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. And here's what they do. God, I'm looking around and I'm looking back in our history. How have you loved us? I sure don't see it. They whine back to him about they, as they look at their current situation. And because they had struggled so much in their past, all they can see is this, God must not love me or I would not have struggled. We would not have struggled so much as a nation. And all God had done is show them faithfulness and their story revealed the Lord's faithful love and yet as they looked around with a rebuilt temple, the walls of the city of Jerusalem restored, economics and the economy was going around, they just questioned, the creature questions the Creator's love. You don't love because I don't see it. Oh God, I know you say you love me and you will love me, but when I look around, the actions kind of feel like, kind of seem like you don't love. And so the question comes, as they don't know what love is and they've lost sight of it, but they're determining what love ought to look like. Okay, God, you say you love us. Well, this is what we think it ought to look like because when we look around right now, it just doesn't seem like you love us and it doesn't feel like you Love us as well. And boy, I tell you, we can be this way. If you're not this way, then we need you to come up here right now and talk to us because we wrestle with this. Sometimes we're like, God, what, what are you doing? When things aren't going our way and we can question the care of God, the goodness of God in our lives. And we can say, God, you know, I wouldn't be struggling quite as much if your love was just a little bit better, it was more concerned, it was more pinpoint to a certain area. God, what have you done for us lately? So indifferent were they, so indifferent are we at times where we question, listen to this, they are questioning, you remember what Paul, I'll get there in a second. The The one unique thing that makes God God is His holiness. But the second thing that the New Testament affirms as God is what? Love. So they were so indifferent to God, His nature is love, and they're questioning what God is saying in His words, grounded to who He is, that He is love. I, 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 I have loved you, I'm loving you today, and I'm going to love you in the future, and, and they are rejecting what God has to say about this. This is not a good statement for God's people to say back to Him that He doesn't love us. This here, any image of this, any song about this, anytime we pray about it, it just screams God was willing to do the ultimate thing to redeem and love and pour out His love on broken people. 
by allowing his son to stand in our place and to bear the wrath of God for us. And it's blasphemous for us to think at the cross in a way that doesn't say that God doesn't love us because it's clear that he loves. And so they question God. And I could go through a list of so many things about how they question God. Um, we know those stories. We're familiar with them. But as the canon of the Old Testament is fast coming to a close, and one last outreach to them, they refused to believe what God had said to them in His words again, that He actually had loved them all along, that He's continuing and He's still in love with them. And there is such a great lesson to point out here. Everybody doing okay this morning? You need to hear this. This is important for us. If we put a mandate on God that the only way that we can know if He loves us is evidence of a tangible blessing, then we've missed the reality of His nature of being a God of love. This is what they're doing here. God, we're... You sent us away for 70 years. We've been back for 100. Where's the blessing? Zachariah's message. Where's what Isaiah said was going to happen? God, where is this? And when we do this, we, we mandate on God that He's got to give us something to kind of prove His love. Then we will live with small trust in Him and we will often be angry at Him and disappointed. What happens in that scenario is we flip the thing out around where we say, yeah, God's God and God can do whatever He wants to do with our lives, but, but we, it's the way they were in Malachi's generation, we can do it too. We want to flip around. We want to be able to tell God how He ought to love us. And God has loved us everlasting. And we should just, again, just be amazed at this holiness of God. And one day we will see the holiness of God. The redeemed people will when we are in God's presence. And we will be blown away, I think, for all of eternity that God had loved the way that He had. And I think one of the things that would radically transform all of our lives is to never do this before God but to just always do this. And when He speaks, He's speaking love, calling us to relationship. And yet this generation questioned God's statement that I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. They kind of felt like they deserved more from God, even though disobedience, doubt, Disappointment and disillusionment with God was the dominant path that they were walking on. And here God is reaching out, declaring definitively where He stood with the obstinate people once again to Him, making sure it's clear to them, I still love you. And they're like, 
I don't know how you've done that. So God lovingly says, okay, I'll answer your question. Let me tell you how I have loved you. So look at the next verse. Look at the last part of verse 2. So they say, how have you loved us? And so he poses a question to them. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. And yet I have loved Jacob. Verse 3. But Esau I have hated and I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Verse 4. If Edom, the descendants of Saul, of, uh, of Esau, says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, well, they may build, but I'm going to tear it down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So here's what God does here. Watch this. So beautiful. So God's like, I, I, I've loved you. I love you. I'm going to love you. Don't see it. Don't see it now. Don't see it in the past. We just as a people, we've struggled over and over. And he's like, how about going back to the beginning? And let me give you an illustration. So Rebecca gets pregnant. Inside of her, she's got twin boys. And they're fighting in the womb. So she goes and inquires of the Lord one day and says, what's happening in here? And God's like, two nations are inside of you, and they're fighting together. And this is what, the, this is what Genesis 25, 23 says. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. And one's going to be stronger than the other one, and the older is going to serve the younger. So God's establishing that before the twins were born, the younger was chosen to be exalted over the older one. To advance God's purposes. It would come through Jacob, not through Esau. God could have just as easily chosen Esau. He's God. He can do what He wants to do. But God chose to do it this way through Jacob. And because He did, the people in Malachi's day were to look around their borders and to see something. Esau's descendants became a people called the Edomites. The word Edom means red. He was red-haired. And so, if you remember the story, one day Jacob comes in, or Jacob's making, he's making food. Esau comes in, and he's like, oh, I've been out all day. I'm hot. It's hot. It's, you know, it's kind of like Texas. I know it's, Texas hasn't been invented yet, but it's hot here, and I'm sweaty, and I've been out. And, and Jacob's like, hey, uh, and Esau's like, can I have some of that food you're making? And Jacob's like, well, if you'll sell me your birthright, I'll give you some stew. I'll give you some of these lentil stew. And uh, Esau's like, yeah, I'll do that. And he becomes an example of those who sell away and discard the uniqueness of who they are for just a momentary pleasure. Just casting things that are valuable, casting it away. And so he gives up his birthright. In that moment, Jacob hungered after God. He wasn't a perfect man. He was a schemer, but in time he grew to trust and to love the Lord. Esau never came to a place where he trusted God. There's no emphasis at all from Esau's life 
of having any interest in spiritual things. As a matter of fact, matter of fact the writer of Hebrews in twelve sixteen says, See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So what happened eventually is that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, fought Israel over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he laid waste to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., five years later, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Edomites that were just on the eastern part of the border of Israel, and they were never able to rebuild, and they were gone. Now watch what happens here. The Edomites were treacherous people, sinful people, rebelling against God, fighting the people of God, not interested in the law of God, not interested in the word of God. They were awful people. And God one day used Nebuchadnezzar in 581 B.C. to completely wipe the Edomites off the planet. You can't find an Edomite today. They don't have land their language is gone. And they're like, their, their heart was this. Well, we'll rebuild. And God's like, well, you may rebuild, but I'm going to tear it down. Now watch the beauty of this. They're like, God, how have you loved us? And God's like, let me give you an illustration of how I loved you. You, Israel, my covenant people, have been through most of your life just like the Edomites were rebelling against me. Idol worship. And note, just just on the other side of your border, there's an example of how much I love you. Guess what, Israel? You've come back to the land and you've resettled it. I am showing you I love you. You're back in the land. The temple's been rebuilt. Jerusalem is secure. So look and see that I've taken care of you and look where the descendants of Esau on the other side of the border there, they do not exist anymore. So you saying to me, I don't love you. No, I've given you evidence that I love you even though you have been like them over and over and over again just like the Edomites throughout your history. And yet I'm still loving you and caring for you. Regarding Jacob and Esau, both of them are not always great men. Jacob was a liar, a deceiver, and a manipulator. Esau was impulsive, lived for temporary pleasures, carried anger for a long time. Esau was never interested in things of God. He just lived for his own personal appetites. As there is no indication that he ever had a heart for God at any point in his life. So God says, hey, Israel, descendants of Jacob, whom I chose, you're here. They are not. 
So for you to say back to me, do I love you? I've given you evidence that I love you. And I'm continuing to love you. But with you, Israel, even though you've been treacherous at times, you've been violent, you've had heartless worship, you've followed idols, you've rejected me, you've rejected my word often, I have kept my covenant with you and allowed you to resettle the land that I promised to you and I actually gave it to you. It's yours. And I'm continuing to be lovingly patient with you because I am a promise keeper. Is that not amazing that God is this way? The psalmist wrote, where would we be if God kept an accounting of our wrongs? God's love sometimes for some is just too hard to fathom. How could that be possible that God loves me? You don't know what I have done in my life. You don't know what I think about during the week and I can't find the freedom from and I don't want to do this anymore. And I continue to go back to God for years and maybe even decades we've been going back to God with, okay, God, I did it again. And God, I don't know if I'm ever going to be free from this. And in our mind, we begin to build up this idea that there's no way God could love people like us who are treacherous and rebellious. There's just too much stacked against us. And that's a tragedy when somebody gets to that place and begins to think that. And so here's what they do. Even inside of the church, many Christians think, I've done so much, I still struggle so much. Yes, I'm a follower. Yes, I go to church. But I just, I just have been doing this for so long. So, so there's, uh, there's no way God could really love me, truly. He tolerates me. And so here's what they do. They try to build a better perspective of themselves before God by bringing in things of the world and trying to look better and try to be better, try to be more successful because maybe that will impress God. I want to remind us this morning, God is never impressed with the things of the world. And so if there's anybody in the room who thinks this morning, if I could just be this, then God would love me. And I'm here to tell you, he can't love you any more than he loves you right now. When somebody does that, they exchange the glory of God's love for making sure that the things of the world define whether their life has meaning or not. And I tell you, the thing that defines whether our life has meaning or not is this verse. God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there any question whether or not scripturally God loves us? Romans 5.8 answers the question. So I don't need to dress myself up, try to make myself more, I don't know, whatever it is. I can't get better looking anymore. That's over, that hope is over with. I can't become a better athlete. I'm too old. I can't, I can't add things to make me better. So I need to quit. And if you're younger, you need to quit. 
He has proven his love. And so God divinely decrees his love and he says, look at Jacob and Esau and that proves that I love you because I still love Jacob. You are my covenant people even though you are like the descendants of Esau at times. I'm going to close with this. This is good. It's 1122. That's good for me. Listen. Listen. Look at verse 5. I think there's two aspects of this. I think there was an immediate aspect of this. And then because of the promise that's connected to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, there's a future fulfillment of this. And this is what I want to touch on as we finish. Your own eyes shall see this. He tells them, just look around at what happened with the Edomites. And when you look around and you will see, you will say, you will say this, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So again, I said a while ago, Edom was just beyond the border of Israel. They could look and see in Malachi's generation, okay, God still loves Jacob. There's no Edomites anymore. They're gone. So it's clear He's brought us back. Yeah, the circumstances weren't all perfect. Artaxerxes was still the Persian king over them. But they were back in their land. The temple was rebuilt. The city was rebuilt. Everything around them should have said, God cares about you. God still loves you. So look at the Edomites and see what happened and took place there and see that God still loves you. But then I think this also has a far-reaching implication, too, of looking beyond the borders. There's an interesting passage in the book of Revelation that shows something amazing. God calls 144,000 male virgin Jews to go out into the world 12,000 from each tribe, and they go out, and for what we understand, they go out to evangelize the world during that day. They can't be killed. Unique men of ministry pouring their lives out in the last days on the planet. And after John sees the 12,000 and that they're going to be sent out, John writes this in Revelation 7, 9. He said, And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. And they kept crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels that were around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, everybody got down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And they said words like this, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God Forever and ever, amen. Now I want you to picture that. 
John sees before the throne, and it's clear he sees different kind of people. Which means this, when we get to heaven, we're not all going to look the same. John looked at all the people gathered before the throne, all these nations, and they look different still. And they are just getting with the worship thing. You remember when Jesus rode into town and they laid the palm branches down? They've got palm branches in heaven. So if you're wondering, there's trees? Yes, there's trees. They've got palm branches. And they're laying them down and they're worshiping. And and John is seeing something beyond the borders of Israel that has happened and that is taking place now before the throne. One of the great encouragements for us today, right now in this moment, is that there are still about 6,000 people groups on the planet today that do not have a Christian witness among those people. They don't know the Lord. haven't heard about Him. But can I tell you what John sees here? Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white, in the blood of the Lamb. And then he has a few more things to say there. And I want to close with this. Do you know what John sees before the throne in heaven? That the great commission has been finished. Every language, every tribe, every nation, every people group is before the throne of God. So that ought to lift your spirits this morning that God is going to accomplish exactly what He said He would do. He's going to bring people into the kingdom. And so there's going to come a day when Israel awakens again. We know based on Romans 11 and all of that through there, 9 through 11 and all that, that God has hardened the hearts of the Jews. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And there's going to come a day when Israel is going to Awaken again. And they're going to look beyond their borders. And you know what we're going to see when they look beyond their borders? That the promise of the, they came to Abraham, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Do you know what is going to happen? That all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. There's going to be witnesses among all those people. So God is saying here, just watch what I do even with an obstinate people. I can do my work. So if you're here today and what we've talked about today, you are wondering about. I know I say that all the time, if you're here today. If you're here today, you're here today, right? I don't know why we speakers say that all the time. Anyway, for those of us who are here today, here's the the point. You are loved by God. And it's evidenced in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place. And you need to let that wash over you. And the enemy will continue to say to you, you've done too much bad. 
you're still struggling with that same thing. And I just want to remind you, he is a liar, Satan is. And God is the lover of your soul. So that's, there's two choices today. There's only two choices today. Listen to the lie of the enemy or listen to the eternal holy one who says, I love you and I've proved it. And let that wash over us. All right, let's pray.